0: Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's Revenge? Daniel-san, you look Revenge that way. Start by digging to the grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle. Sooner or later, get the squish, just like grip. Well, hi folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 137, as uh, we talk about a subject that came up in the Miwi post for Miyagi Mornings. That um, I thought I, it's probably really beyond time that I did this. And I may need to play this segment on air during a regular show for the people that don't listen to the recap on the podcast. Because occasionally I have guests that invoke this very subject and they often invoke it from the way that I don't think that word means what you think it means. And that is the term natural law. There's actually two ways we can look at natural law. From a standpoint of being people who believe in liberty and freedom. And one is in the same vein as this way that it gets used, but it doesn't mean what is claimed. And the other is just a much more natural principle that we can look at. So let's start out with where I go, yeah, I don't think so. There are proponents of the concept of natural law who rope this in with the entire kind of sovereign citizens movement and and other things where... It's almost like you're watching like a late night TV show. If you learn the magic words, you can drive without a license, never pay taxes again. Does that sound great? Well, just wait, because there's more. And, and it's almost like this kind of reverse mysticism of the state. Like, since we all actually know the state is just basically a big pile of mysticism, these vaulted figures over here have this power because people elected them. And you agreed to this uh, this contract that you've never seen or signed. You're still party to this contract that says these people have. That is mysticism. It's also, though, backed up with a shitload of force. And there are a large number of people who seem to actually believe um, that if they simply say the right words or don't say the wrong words, that... None of the laws that apply to the commoners apply to them. They'll say, Well, I don't, I'm not to be judged under this form of law. I'm to be judged under maritime law or whatever. And this is, this is all dangerous nonsense. There's a lot of nonsense that people believe, and it's overall harmless. I I was picking on the flat earth people last week a little bit because, well, they were vocal and sticking their heads up like the mole that needed whacking, but. If you want to believe the earth is flat, dude, go ahead. Like, That's not really dangerous. Like, You're not going to drive a car recklessly because you believe the earth is flat. You're not going to not think that, even though you're denying physics, you're not denying physics enough that you're like, gee, uh, people think that turn can be taken at about 30 miles an hour, but I bet I can do it at 130 because the earth is flat. That's not going to likely happen, and if you're that dumb, It wouldn't matter why you justified it. You'd probably do it and kill yourself and hopefully not other people at the same time anyway. So it's a harmless belief in bullshit. And lots of people get out and they sell bullshit because it makes for some of the most popular channels on YouTube and other platforms that there are. People love the whole... That's why there's a show called Ancient Aliens. Because people love to believe in things that are counter to natural beliefs or to what is best known. And sometimes those people are right, and a lot of times they're just wackadoodles. And a lot of times I think the people behind it aren't as crazy as they seem. They just know that they'll get eyeballs and it's a way to make money, and they're entertainers. And all of that I'm fine with. Up until you... You lead somebody to believe, if I just file these certain papers and say these certain words, I'll never have to pay income tax again. And I want to head something off, because I know it's coming. But you don't know. I've been doing this for 15 years now. I haven't filed a tax return in 15 years. Nothing's ever happened to me. Yeah, and there's a guy not far from here that I'm pretty sure sells meth every day out of his front door, and he hasn't been arrested either yet. And it doesn't mean if some of the people around him don't eventually make enough phone calls, the sheriff's department's not going to show up with a warrant, kick his door in, seize all his meth-making supplies, and arrest him. Most of you probably can say, there's a person somewhere that I know of engaging in highly illegal activity that seems to get away with it. You don't then turn around and say, well, it's because they said special words. If anything, it's because they paid special people special money. That they're getting away with it. Or they're just not yet on the radar. They're not yet worthy of going after what have you. And if you think... That you can say something like, I am a sovereign being and I do not stand under the authority of your court and you can make all the laws that apply to everybody else not apply to you. If you think you can drive your car down the road with your own freaking license plate that you made up yourself and do that in perpetuity forever with no license, no insurance, no registration and you're never going to get arrested for it or you're never going to have fines enforced on you for it you're delusional. And that's where a lot of this stuff comes from that because I'm going to stand under natural law instead of man's law, your law doesn't apply to me. And there's some combination of paperwork and filings and removal of filings and what have you. And your birth certificate is really a stock certificate that's barred against and you can find out how much you're worth. And This is all stupid. None of this has any merit at all. It's dumb. And I had a, a guest last week that teetered into it and was in danger of going overboard with it, and I pulled her out of it, and we went other places, because otherwise she was an exceptional guest. Maybe it was the week before last. It was either last week or the week before last, and I didn't want it to ruin what was a great show. Because I And the reason I don't generally take, and there's some people I really respect that are smart people. They're not flat earthers. But they may as well be for how much they've deceived themselves into believing that this shit's real. It's not. They will put you in jail. They do not give two shits what you say. And, and you know, there's things that I've heard some of these people say that are just asinine. So they'll say, like, so when you're in court, the judge will look at you and say, well, you've been charged with blah, 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 and you face up to blah, 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 blah. Do you understand? And when you say yes, you're not saying that you understand one word, you're saying that you understand two words. It's a little trick they play on you, where you then contractually agree to stand under the authority of that court. You can stand in that court and say, Your Honor, I do not stand under anything here. And as you've asked it, I do not understand. However, I comprehend what you're saying. And we can proceed if you feel that we need to. Or you can say any magic words you want. And you know what? You can sit there and say nothing. And you can still be convicted and you can still be held liable and you can still be fined or thrown in a a cage. And no magic words are going to make that go away. Now some of these people will point to, well, this person came to my house and they said that they had a right to do these things and I told them to go screw off and I said these following awesome words in this order. Those aren't the magic words, but they're not the magic words under natural law. Those are the magic words of knowing their own laws, their own codes, and their own rules, and explaining their own rules to them. And it's no, it's actually no different than the police come to your house. Uh, we'd like to search the house, Mr. Spearco. Do you have a warrant? No. Goodbye. Well, we'll go get one. I'll see you later. Bye-bye now. You know what kind of people uh, require a warrant? Yes, smart people. Bye-bye now. Right, like That's not standing under natural law. That's standing under U.S. and Texas, in my case, Texas state law. No warrant, no entry, but by now. See how simple that is? And that's always only contingent upon the person who has this state-granted authority actually recognizing their own rules, because we all know they break their own rules all the time. So an entity, which is basically a criminal gang, that's what the government is, That constantly breaks its own rules all the time. That puts people in prison against its own rules all the time. That constantly ignores its own standards for itself all the time. You think you're going to pull some magic-conjured bullshit out of your ass, and they're going to recognize your magic is stronger than their magic. That's what this, this argument is. So where do we get where we have relevancy in this concept of natural law? two places one it absolutely can be argued in court it absolutely was for a large period of history argued in court you can go out and research why lawyers stopped doing it and the big answer is because in most cases it ceased working and if you hire a lawyer you don't want them to do the thing that that you know is like the best thing for the balance of all things in the universe you want them to do the best thing to get the outcome that is most favorable to you, that is the purpose of an attorney. You've been charged with a crime. You either want to get you you want to either thrown out, you want a not guilty verdict, uh, you want an innocent verdict, you want dropped charges, you want at a bare minimum a reduction in the charge, so that if you are convicted, you're convicted of a lesser charge with less consequences. That's what you want. You want some kind of outcome like that. So. Here would be an example of, of, of natural law trying to be invoked. Let's say that I was growing a whole bunch of big plants that get these nice little buds on them, and uh, they're not the kind that the state of Texas says I'm allowed to grow now. They're the kind that they say I'm not allowed to grow. And I argue in court that it is, an, it is natural law that dictates that me having plants growing on the property, which I rightfully own, is in no way a crime against the state or any other human being. That this is, this is, this is, this is natural that I should be able to control the plants that grow on my property. I completely agree with that argument. And you know what it'll do in court of law? Absolutely nothing, including when you say you do not stand under their authority. It won't matter. You're still going to freaking prison for growing, you know, illegal cannabis, at least in this state, especially the kind of quantity I have in my head here, this big cannabis forest, right? Go, you're going deep in the pen. You're going so far back into jail, they're going to have to pump sunlight in with a straw for you. That's what's going to happen, and it doesn't matter. But we can argue from that point. The problem with arguing from the point of this charge or this thing that we are now in a court of law over is being defended from a standpoint of we're standing under natural law here, that this law should not exist in the first place. You basically have conceded that you have violated the law as written if it is your only defense. If it's an adjunctive defense, you know, maybe that's a Hail Mary worth trying. See if it works. Your lawyer will probably advise against it, because it still infers. So basically what you're saying is, yes, I really did these things that you accuse me of, but I should be allowed to do them anyway. That's, that's a basic defense that you're using there. Because God said so, or the natural observations of humans, uh, and these things are endowed to us by our creation or by our existence. Like This is not dependent on the belief in a specific deity or even a deity at all to use natural laws as a defense. And I believe in the validity of this defense. I'm just telling you it doesn't work. The real place that natural law fits into Our lives as anarchists, voluntarists, agorists, even libertarians, because sooner or later you'll see that leaving a little bit of the cancer behind doesn't work, libertarians, is simple. It is about us governing ourselves and our own lives. That's the important part. Natural law is that if you observe how humans treat other humans... There are things that if you do them, they will eventually harm yourself, they will harm your children, and they will harm others, and hence they should not be done. That if you were to take a look at something like slavery, you could actually argue for or against it using natural law depending on where you go for your authority. Your authority, right? Right, like Cartman. So if you, if you, if you view the Old Testament of the, of the Bible, as your authority, you'd say, since there's a rule set out by God who is above all things for how to keep slaves, as long as those rules are followed, it's okay. If you were to use natural observation, which is the true foundation of natural law, i.e., when these things occur, is it good or bad for humanity? You would you would argue from a different standpoint that clearly Wherever we've instituted and implemented slavery, it has been a bad thing for humanity. It's had horrible consequences. Therefore, it goes against natural law as observed by logic and reason in human society, which I think is a much more level-headed, logical way to make that argument. But either way, you would be arguing for natural law, which shows in of itself, just pointing to something and calling it natural law is still subject to the individual making the argument. It is either subject to some sort of religious authority God on high dictated in this particular group of book, books or book, right? Because your religious belief and my religious belief may not be the same. Therefore, we have to use different books for whatever supposedly natural law is. How would you, how would you like that being done uh, under the name of the, of the Islamic faith, under a strict interpretation of the Islam, Islamist faith? that we have going on in many parts of the world today, saying we're going to govern from natural law that way. So kind of the, the more logical, the more prudent way to use natural law is again the observation. It is real world karma, whether energetic or just simply consequence-based. Consequence if you're a shitty person to people, people in time will be shitty to you. Because people don't like shitty people, they don't like being treated like shit, and it will come back and it will hurt you. If you harm others, it will come at your own expense in time. If you steal from others, it will come at your own expense in time. This is the natural law by which we come away with the basic non-aggression principle, right? And basic, the basic overall guidance of everything we believe as true liberty-loving people. If you're actually liberty-loving, your guiding principle should always come back to what? Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. That is the foundation of true natural law. That when that that rule is broken, it causes pain. It causes suffering. It causes bad things to happen. And so, natural law is in direct conflict with the concept of a state. But again, and I believe that, I also will, will freely admit, this is my interpretation of this thing. And you can't have something that's like all overriding and all powerful when it itself is subject to interpretation by individuals. Because if you get into any situation because you're facing a minor charge because you were driving with a piece of paper you made for yourself that you called a driver's license or a, a, a license plate of some sort and you were saying that I was traveling freely and therefore your driver's license system and registration system does not apply to me, you're, what's going to happen is you're going to end up sooner or later in that process in front of a judge, and that judge is going to—it's going to be that judge's subjective opinion as to whether or not your defense. If, if we got to the point where maybe it became a jury trial, it could even be to the point where that judge will determine whether or not the jury is even allowed to hear your defense. You could be not denied the ability to provide for your own defense from the angle or with the information you wish to provide. It happens all the time. It's usually a travesty of justice when that is done. I think that if a person has any information at all relevant to what's going on in their defense, they should be able to present it. I can't think of the guys named Scott Peterson, for instance. This is a high-level criminal trial. This is a guy that was convicted of killing his wife who was pregnant at the time and dumping her body into the bay out in California. Well, his defense attorney got a boat that was the same size as his client's boat put a dummy in it that weighed as much as his pregnant wife, got a guy that weighed as much as Scott Peterson, put it on a pond and said, okay, dump the body out of the boat. And every time the guy tried to stand up and maneuver this deadweight body out of the boat, the boat sank. Now that doesn't prove he did or didn't do it, but it is certainly relevant to the argument. You know what the judge said? Inadmissible. So the defense attorney was never able to provide that information to the jury. Oh, but you're going to go into court and tell the judge that you don't stand under his authority and you don't agree to the to, to the uh, the stipulation of the court and therefore it doesn't, uh, doesn't apply to you. Yeah, that's going to work. That's going to work great. Sure it is. And you can write all the books you want. You can set up all the online courses. You can have all the experts you want wheeled in. And that is not going to change this. But it also won't change the 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 concept of natural law, it won't change that there is a natural law to how humans should treat each other and that we're all better off when we follow it. It won't change that there are natural laws. I've, I said this, you know, all the way back in 2008. I did a podcast. I think the first time I ever said there are natural laws like gravity, and it's, I'm not talking about the the physics based scientific law of gravity. There's an observable law that exists whether the science is there for it or not. You drop something, it falls. And if you happen to drop yourself off a building, you will experience a consequence of going splat. We call that a deceleration injury. It sucks, and the higher you go, the worse the impact is going to be, and the more likely you will be crippled for life or die. That's natural law, and the rest of it should all be seen that way. With an understanding... That sometimes any individual, being a human, is capable of making mistakes and could get that interpretation wrong. Which is why true natural law should be backed up by decades, centuries, millennia of observation. Humans behaving this way generally experience this consequence. This consequence overall is good or bad from a standpoint of it alleviates suffering or it causes suffering. That's it at its most basics. Now, there's actually a really great in depth article critically examining the concept of natural law on the Heritage Foundation website. And there's a link in the video notes today where you can read that. And if you want to start learning more, it's where I would start. And I would say that there are a lot of really great books that are written from the standpoint of using natural law to argue, you know, basically from a jurisprudence concept. And they have, they make great points. But they don't change the reality of the system that you live in. Let's put it this way. Most of us would agree under natural law it is wrong for one person to take the property of another person which has been rightfully acquired. But if you're walking through a back alley and five thugs come out and point guns at you, Like Two of them have guns and three of them have bats, and they're fixing to bash your body in, and they say, what we want from you is your wallet, and if you give us your wallet, we will let you go, saying you are violating natural law will result in another natural law playing itself out, which is when people are malicious and they have the upper hand, they will use the malicious nature to get what they want from you. It may be ethically and morally wrong, but it is still a natural law that people behave this way. So what you will do, if you have any brains at all, is you will, if nothing else, you will feign compliance if not comply. You will give up your wall in that situation because you don't have a better option. Maybe you will feign compliance. Maybe you're armed. Maybe you'll use it as misdirection. But one way or another, you're not going to stay there, stand there and think, well, if I use magic words, they'll all go away. You're going to stand there and go, you know what, being like this to people is lame. Why don't you be nice and expect that those, ma- and those magic words are no more likely to work than saying, God Almighty has decreed that you should not steal. Or the nature of the universe is if you steal from me today it will harm you tomorrow. Those people don't care. If you think that those people aren't exactly the same as your government, you have not identified the problem and you do not understand the problem. In fact, many of the painful consequences we're dealing with right now are because right now we exist as a planet in a state where we are outside the realm of good natural law as long as we have humans ruling other, over other humans without their consent we are in violation of natural law but it does not change reality it does not change these people have power it does not change that they will use it against you And no magic words will ever make it so. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up the podcast today. We'll be back together with another episode. Well, hi folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings episode 138. And uh, I I think this will be a good one today. I was listening to a podcast by Peter McCormack today when I was uh, doing my duck duty and taking care of the ducks out. And I had my headphones on and I'm, I'm sitting there listening to Jack Mahler's yet again. And he said some things that made me go, I already knew this, but now I have a way to explain it yet again with a different analogy. And I think with something as complex as Bitcoin, I, I really believe you have to put about 100 hours of research. And so that's just not like 100 hours of watching YouTube videos. That's like 100 hours of actually coming up with legitimate questions, but then instead of using them as a way to like make it go away, you actually say, now how can I answer this? And answering those questions for yourself before you become a convert. And I think that when people say, well, I looked into it, and they mean they, you know, they they watched, you know, four or five YouTube videos, they they didn't. And uh, Jack and I and uh, many other Bitcoiners would uh, agree with that. But he said something today and it triggered this whole episode, even though it was only one line. So I want to give him credit for that. So I want to start out with using an analogy and a storyline. And I think humans, we work in stories. And when you create a scenario that's not attached to a polarizing issue, it lets the person's mind open, and and some of the greatest teachers in history have used stories to teach. We all know this. So I'm going to tell you a story, and you are going to be in the story with me. And in this story, you are a banker. In fact, you are a loan officer. You sit in a great, giant, beautiful office with a big desk, and people come to you and say, please, sir, may I borrow some money? And you say, no, be gone, or you say, yes, I shall give you money. And then you're making a risk-based analysis on behalf of your bank, and you're determining, I believe that this person's a good risk, that our money will go out and come back to us, and we will earn some money and interest on this, and this is a good bet or a bad bet, and then I hit rejection. Big red red rubber reject stamp right on the guy's forehead, and out the door he goes. So I come to you and I say, well, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to borrow $400,000. And your first question is going to be, what's your income? And I I show you my personal income is about $100,000. And then your question is going to be, and what are your personal debts? And I'm going to show you, I'm going to say to you, okay, well, here's here's my personal debts, right? These are my personal debts. And you're going to look at it, and you're going to see that almost all my personal income seems to already be going out the door in personal debts. And I want you to ask yourself a question right now. At this point in our story, if that's all the information you have, I have $100,000 income. I want to borrow $400,000. Um, I have a lot of other debt. I don't really have a lot of extra income that you can see yet. Will you give me the loan? And if you're on the live stream, go ahead and, and type, you know, yes or no into the comment section. Would you give me the loan? And I will continue the story uh, as well. So now that you've got that in your head you would say probably most of you are going to say what no why would i why would i give you the money jerk you don't you don't have enough income and you have a debt to income ratio that's not really great and i say to you okay but see i'm not asking for a personal loan i'm asking for a business loan and my business owns this building and this building and i and you say fine okay we're talking collateral now what what is the building worth and i Pull out a, a property estimate on the building, and I hand it to you. And the building, as a structure, is worth hundred thousand dollars. Starting to get there some way, somehow. But I have a ninety thousand dollar mortgage against this structure, so it's worth a hundred. I owe ninety on it. Now I've tendered an additional ten thousand dollars in collateral, which is still a risk for you. And I want four hundred thousand dollars. Are you going to give me the loan yet? And most of you are probably going to say, no, pound sand, get out of here. Big reject stamp on the forehead. Why are you wasting my time? Hold on, hold on. And I pull out like a big old you know, roll of blueprints, right? And I lay these blueprints on your desk and I say, Mr. Banker, what you need to know is I'm tendering the entire building as is, as collateral. And inside this building are lines and lines of computer racks. And in those racks are computers, thousands of computers, and they're hooked up to the, to the whole world through a uh, great big fat back-end connection. And I, I rent space in these computers to other people to do things with. And here, and I pull out another piece of paper and I go, this is my income statement. And I'm billing about a million dollars a year for these computers to do their task. And I have expenses of about a quarter million dollars on this business. So this business posts an annualized profit of three quarters of a million dollars. And I am now offering the building, the computers, everything as collateral against a $400,000 loan. Now, are you going to give me the loan? And I'll wait a little bit for some answers to come in. At this point, in our thought experiment, I have a $100,000 building, but I have a three-quarter a three million dollar profit coming out of it, and I want to borrow $400,000. And there's no other, I'm not, I'm not gaming the system, I'm not asking 25 people for loans like this. You can look at it, clean, clean search, everything's good. You're probably going to give me the loan now. Because it makes sense to you now. I have $400,000 I'm giving this clown. He has three-quarters of a million dollars in income, and if he defaults, I'm going to take possession of his entire operation. So what is the backing of that loan based on primarily? And it's primarily based on the technology. You can say it's based on the book of business, the customers. And as a business person, you'd be very smart to point out without a customer base, that technology has no value. But without a technology base, there's no customers. The customers are paying for the computers to perform a task. This could be co-location facilities for telecom. This could be web hosting services. This could be um, computers that perform analysis for scientific organizations so that they can co-locate their processing in a much higher level facility. So it's really doing things like research for SETI or, or who knows what. It doesn't really matter. It's the technology that provides the backing. And now you're willing to give me the loan. And the reason you're willing to give me the loan is, is why? Because it makes sense to you. And because there's something backing the loan. And what's backing that loan is technology. Now, we're going to transition here. And I say, I actually don't want your money. I just wanted to make sure that you understood where I was coming from. And I say, this network, this, this one building that I own, with all these computers doing all this work, is only one building. And there are thousands of buildings like it, And many are much larger and they do much more than my building does. And for redundancy purposes, we've located them all over the world. There's giant ones in like Washington State and the United Kingdom and Texas and little ones down in like Central America, like El Salvador and Mexico, and giant ones out in China, giant ones in Japan. There's big ones in Russia. There's little ones in Africa. There's literally millions upon millions of computers dedicating their processing to this network. Now, how valuable is the network? Let's let's forget about whether you're going to give me the loan. How valuable is that network? Now, let's expand the knowledge of the story, because the story is now the truth. In addition to all these giant data centers, small, large, etc., some far bigger than mine, some far smaller than mine, there are Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of individuals running small versions of these data centers in closets in their home all over the world. All of those people are contributing to the processing power, the security, and the reliability of this network as well. Now, what is that network worth? Wait, there's more. Right now, and for the last 10 years, there have been professors at MIT, at Caltech, At Oxford, there have been professors all over the world at high-end universities developing cryptographic solutions to play with this network. And if you tie into this network, and this is where I'm borrowing from what Jack Maulers was pointing out. If you tie into this network from anywhere in the world, you get all those people's knowledge immediately available. And anybody, anywhere, can tie into and use this network. Now what's the network worth? Oh wait, there's more. There's also tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people for this discussion, because in the minds of most people this would be the right phrase, we'll call them hackers. They're not actually hackers, they're very advanced coders. They are also all over the world, from corporation level, to governmental level, to, um, to institution level, to individual level working to develop technology and security and functionality for this network. And if you tie into it from any, if you're in the middle of the outback in Australia, but you have an internet connection and you have uh, power, you can tie into this network and you get all of that. If you're a third world nation like El Salvador or Paraguay or whatever, you have access to the technology being actively developed by MIT professors on cryptography in this network. You have access to the technology being developed by people that are building large corporations like the Strike Network. You have access to technology that is being developed to work into this in a multi-layered approach on this network with giant corporations that have just gone public like Coinbase. You get it all from one access point, and you can build anything you want to go on that network. Now what's the network worth? And then I tell you the purpose of the network. The purpose of the network is so that any any two entities can conduct commerce on this network that has all this going for it in any way that they choose. They can conduct commerce in a peer-to-peer model where everybody's written out. They can conduct commerce in a multi-party method. They can conduct they can conduct a transaction for a dollar, or they can conduct a transaction for ten million dollars, and both of those transactions can be almost free relative to the size of the transaction. Because what you've been told about this network that it has to be expensive to spend a dollar is wrong. And here and I show you because I don't have time to do it in this video. I show you how that works, and you know you can actually spend a dollar, and it'll cost you less than a penny. And I say to you, now you can sit using this network and you can conduct a transaction with someone all the way around the world for pennies. And you have instant settlement in some instances and even what's considered takes a long time to settle is less than half an hour and you're going to compare that to something like Western Union or the Visa network or the MasterCard network, which is a closed. All those other networks, ACH, all of those networks are closed networks. You can use that network but you pay a fee to use it and you cannot build a technology that works on it, but you can. You can build any technology you want to to live on this network. Now, I want you to just take a second. And anybody, okay, here's a here's somebody trying to come up with nonsense. Uh, Lukid, lucid, Luke, Luke, Luke. like Strike is a KYC scam. No, it's not. No one makes you use Strike. Uh, what happens when everyone is KYC'd? You don't have to KYC all your Bitcoin and because you're using a custodial Bitcoin, not real Bitcoin. Wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. No one is in custody of your Bitcoin to use the Lightning Network. I can't go into that today. But this is an example of clung to ignorance. When you use the Lightning Network, you are not using custodial Bitcoin. You are using a payment network to send bitcoin from one person or one party to another party or one party to multi-party. You can hold bitcoin and use lightning and never give up custody of your bitcoin until you send it somewhere and no one has ever shown me a transaction where I sent this somewhere using lightning and it didn't get there. So your your objections are absolutely asinine and they are based on false beliefs. So let's go back to the this is this is an example guys. This is why I like doing this live. Because this is an example of somebody making claims that doesn't have any ability to understand the claim that they're making. Because, for instance, we can use the strike network with actually actually holding the money in strike. It just makes it easier to do so. Right? You can have a lightning wallet that you maintain full custody over. And, and, and then to make this objection that, but, but if you use strike native, then what's, what's PayPal? Right, People have choices in how they do this. I can send you Bitcoin. I won't because you're giving me no value, dude. Right, But I can send you Bitcoin direct. I can use the Lightning Network. We can use the Lightning Network with no third party if we want to set up and run our own nodes. See, that's where this asininity comes into this. So anybody anywhere who wants to invest in the technology, which is fairly minimal, and learn the techniques and learn what's required to do so, can set up a lightning node and open up a connection to other lightning nodes tomorrow. It's layer two in a multi-layered system. We're now building out layer three. And this, this is the, the reality of, of, of the entire thing. There are people that will never understand this in spite of the way that I just explained it. And the reason those people will never understand it is they do not wish to understand it. They do not want to understand it. And they don't want it to be real. And the reason they don't want it to be real is when people like me were saying back in 2014, 2030, you need to buy some Bitcoin. They didn't. And when we said in 2016, you need to buy some Bitcoin. And then after the crash 2017, 2018, we said it's really down now. You really need to buy Bitcoin. They didn't do it. They don't have any. And now they are bitter. And again, our friend here, Lucrid, is saying lightning is not the same as on-chain. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's a side-chain transaction. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And I'm guaranteeing you that this gentleman does not know at all how, if I asked him to come on with me live, and if he wants to do so, I will bring him on live after we finish the podcast, and I guarantee he's not going to do it, and I'm going to ask him a simple question. Explain to me, we have two parties using the Lightning Network. How does that transaction take place? It's not a smart con. Well, it is, but it isn't. Not in the way that you probably mean it, and that's not an answer. It's a smart contract is not what I mean. I want you to explain to me. I'm over here, you over here. We're getting an argumentative state here, so I'm going to wrap up the podcast portion. But I want you to explain that. How do we both open up a connection? How does that connection resolve itself, and how do we ensure that both parties get what they want before the transaction is finalized? And the people that say, Lightning, is a thir- you're trusting a third party, don't, can't answer that question. Because if you could, you wouldn't claim that. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I just wanted you to get a different way to explain this and a different way to understand this. A different way to try to let other people who actually want an answer understand where the value comes from. Because this side discussion here with our friend, um, this side discussion here with our friend is irrelevant to the point of what gives Bitcoin its value, how it derives value. It derives value from this massive network that if you look at it by monetary units, it's the most successful thing humans have ever done ever. It's, it's, it, you know, if you just measure it by money, it is the largest network ever built. It's the most open network ever built, and it's the most secure network ever built. And if you can't see how that's valuable, then I have to end with today. You don't want to. Tomorrow we'll be back with another episode about something that will not be crypto-related. Well, hi there, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 139, and I do not have a happy topic today, so I don't know why I'm so excited about it or in such a good mood. I guess it's because, well, you know what? No matter how bad things can be, I think attitude is a huge part of getting through them. I want to talk to you about civil unrest today in a way that I really haven't talked about it before. And I also want to talk about a, a song that I played on Thursday's podcast last week at the end of it. From Aaron Lewis uh, Called Am I the Only One And just polling the people that are in the live feed If you have uh, heard that song And uh, it, it speaks to you in any way uh, Type yes in, the, so, in the, uh, the comment stream for me So I can see uh, that I've got some engagement on that Because I think many of you really did enjoy that song And felt, felt the feeling in it We'll come back to it As I talk more about what's going on here There's a lot of stupidity, and I mean a tremendous pile of stupidity going on in the world today coming to us from the government level, and it's very concerning. Uh, Many of you are probably aware that there's currently a purge going on of military leadership. We literally have kind of the senior NCOs and the field level, like, In the army, you're talking like majors, lieutenant colonels, full colonels, and even like the brigadier general level being pushed out under this banner that we need to fight extremism. And and there's been a lot about that. You've got uh, foreign threats like Russia and China's advancements in military technology coming out. And we hear from the potato salad in chief, and his response is we now have maternity flight suits for women because, yeah, that... And all of this is concerning. We see the lopsidedness of the press. We see corporate wokeism. I'll tell you something that concerns me more than that, though, because it's what enables that. So a lot of times when we start talking about alternative medicine, which I think is actually just medicine, we're very correct in saying the problem with modern medicine or allopathic medicine is that We treat symptoms rather than root causes, so a person has a headache, we give them an aspirin or a Motrin or a Tylenol. Well, there's one thing we know about a headache. A headache is not a deficiency in aspirin. Nobody has an aspirin deficiency, nobody has a Tylenol deficiency, nobody has a Motrin deficiency. Our body has absolutely no biochemical need of any of those substances. They are anti-inflammatories and they are pain relievers, so they do have an effect, but If we wanted to treat the problem, we need to look to the underlying cause. Well, the underlying cause of the government not doing this, but being able to get away with it is the people. A a huge portion of the people. And, you know, I've often talked about, you know, putting away childish things when you become a man. And this idea that we're the majority of people needs to be put away or that the people that are batshit crazy are not large in number also needs to be put away. And yesterday I did um, uh, a podcast about ancient civilizations. And in talking about ancient civilizations, I used a term that apparently triggers people. And for all the stupid triggers out there, I didn't know this was one, but it is. I referred to taking care of animals as livestock as, uh, trigger warning coming up, animal husbandry. And this person was deeply offended by my misogyny. This is misogyny, right? Because in Roman times, apparently, men owned their wives. I would say this actually stems from a deep ignorance of Roman history, by the way. I'm just saying. Um, But even if it were true, so what? You're offended by the root of a word in a foreign language that is now dead and nobody even speaks. You had to dig that far back in history to be offended by a word, and you are. This is more concerning because what it, what it leads you to only be able to conclude is a tremendous portion of our society has denounced all reason. They have denounced every bit of reason and logic. This is why we have people doing shit like, actually with a straight face telling you that it makes sense for a failed male athlete to be able to grow out his hair, maybe take some hormones so he gets a little bit of man boobs, claim to be a woman, and compete against females. Like, there, there is no logical place that this makes sense. Like, the, the, the transgendered hero... Uh, Bruce Jenner, whatever the hell he calls himself now, and he's still a he, I'm sorry, but uh, and he can be whatever he wants, I don't care. But even even Bruce Jenner, what, Caitlyn Jenner, came out and said, this is stupid. Like, this is a guy that won the decathlon as an Olympic athlete. He's like, this is stupid. And of course, they immediately turned on him. But it's the segment that actually will look you with a straight face and tell you this, this is inherently dangerous. And then you have a government that has consistently, while being complete and total scum, remember, I hate all government. I hate everything about the state. So if I say one group within government is less bad than another, that's not advocation for government for those of you that are anarchists, but you're also slow students, right? That's just a a fundamental look. That's looking at a landscape and going, these people are more dangerous to my way of life than these people. That's just a threat analysis. If you can't understand that, that's not my problem. I'm not even going to try to help you with that. But we've had this kind of left right false dichotomy. But what we've, what we've had up until very recent times is the right has pointed all of their people at the complete ape shit, batshit, crazy people on the left and made out the entire left to be those batshit, crazy people. Conversely, the left has pointed to the complete ape shit, batshit, crazy people on the right. And you guys on the right, you have them too. They have different neuroses. They have different levels of insanity. They have different ways that they want to control others and pointed at them and made them out to be the whole right. And this has been used to divide us and to keep us from talking to each other and finding common ground. What's happened in the past couple years, and this is where it gets dangerous at the governmental level, is the mainstream left has largely embraced their batshit crazy wing. Now, you just might think, oh, they're showing their true colors and and what have you. If you're a student of history, and you should be, because remember, what do I always say about history? We do not study history to avoid the mistakes of the past, because we're going to make them. We study history because the mistakes of the past will happen again, and we study history so we can recognize them, and individually and collectively, the people that have some sanity and awareness, be prepared for those things to come back. And historically, when... It doesn't matter if it's a left or right, in the modern way they teach the political spectrum, which, by the way, is a lie, but I can't get into today. When either side embraces its batshit crazy wing, it's usually a head fake. Okay? It's a head fake. It's not real. All these people that knew this is freaking nuts didn't all of a sudden decide it makes sense. They've realized... There's enough batshit crazies now that we can move the mob with a slight motion so that resembles the sea and gives us great pleasure as we take over. Most of the batshit crazy that's been embraced by those in power in history, once they get full power... It's not the opposition that they completely wipe out. They wipe out their own batshit crazies first because they've all put their hands up and they know who they are. This is what's happened in revolution after revolution after revolution throughout history. The first person, the first people, that the regime that completely seizes all power and goes maniacal, crushes, puts in internment camps, or outright kills are the people that help them get in power. Then they go after the other side, and hopefully they've done enough crushing of their own that the other side cowers in fear and lets them. And this is another thing you have to understand about regimes seizing this type of control so that we can get into the discussion of how this all looks if shit goes sideways hard. They don't want to kill everybody. All of this new world fanatical nonsense about they're going to like wipe out everybody and take us down to 500,000 people or whatever nonsense people come up with defies looking at history. Governments look at you just like you learned in the Matrix. I don't have a battery, but let's pretend this little fish filter here that I'm using for the video is a battery. You're a battery-like in the Matrix, and if you get rid of all the batteries, you have no power. If you have no one to rule over, what's the point of ruling? So what they do is they kill, imprison, torture, etc., berate, beat down enough to get the masses in line. If they wanted to just kill everybody, they wouldn't build walls around their own country to keep people in. Think about that the next time you think about a wall. But where are we in this huge movement that is absolutely going on in our society. We're in what I call a dry tender phase. Now, during the pandemic, they would say that certain nations maybe took it really hard because you notice it's all the old people that died and they had like really mild flu and cold seasons for a couple of years. And then when we got the, the COVIDs, that those people were ripe to be taken by a new variant of any sort of respiratory illness. Valid theory. But that's dry tinder. That's dry tinder, and that comes from the concept of you. if you don't clear out and manage a forest, when there is a fire, and there will be a fire, right? There will be a fire. If you don't clear the dry tinder, you get a forest-destroying fire rather than a forest-renewing fire. And California hasn't figured this out yet. They can't manage their forests. That's why they have the disasters that they have every year. And they get forest fires that completely destroy forests because they won't manage them properly. And then they get mudslides. So you get a cascading effect of disaster. Keep that in mind. We now have a situation where the left, and I mean the batshit crazy left, actually believe they're 100% right. And the right actually believes it's 100% right. And this is by design. It's also a very dangerous game. It's an exceedingly dangerous game. We are now at a point where you have this pile of debris that could start a massive fire. And instead of clearing it out, everybody is cutting all the dead wood off of their trees, raking up all their leaves, and they're bringing it to a central location and going... Gee, I hope nothing bad happens. And the, and the mound gets giant, like a garbage pile in Idiocracy, where it's like Mount Crumpet from frickin' The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. And pieces of it are falling down and landing all within the streets of the cities and towns that the people building up the tinder live in. And it takes this. One guy going, flick of a cigarette into the pile, and a little smolder starts. It doesn't look so bad. But if it's not immediately stomped out, once it goes, there's no stopping it. And the actual burning of cities, the rampaging, the smashing of cars, the tearing down of buildings, the beating of people, all that shit y'all saw last summer is going to be a day in freaking Disneyland if this thing kicks off. Because people are pissed. They are angry. And whether they're right or wrong, they have a feeling that their anger is righteous. It's a, And when you have righteous anger, and you become, whether you realize you're becoming it or not, part of a mob, and something kicks off, people that would not otherwise act all of the sudden will. Some will do so because, well, they're cowards and they don't want to be shot or beaten or thrown in jail, but now they think they can get away with it because they're part of a mob. There's a whole other group of people. They would never do it in the first place, even if they could get away with it, but when the anger reaches an ignition point, poof. And that's when the people who just want to be left alone have had enough. And I don't say that with the pride that so many of you seem to conjure up. And that's a defense mechanism. I say that with a looming dread. I actually believe that the crap that went on on January 6th was a joke. It was a joke. It was, But they made it out to be like, like, we have literally the President of the United States calling some basic vandalism and trespassing worse than 9-11. Our darkest day in America. Now you have to think about what this is doing... ...to the average person that knows that's bullshit. Their voice has been taken away. They cannot be heard. And when they do try to be heard... ...on all the ways that they know to be heard... ...because they're not smart enough to stop using platforms... ...that don't appreciate them... ...and they keep enriching people who hate them... ...it doesn't matter that they're making a bad decision... They're talking in the microphone, and they're hearing absolutely nothing. They're being silenced yet again. And everything that they know to be true is being grabbed onto a media who's part of this and made out to be a lie. And everything they know to be a lie is being made out to be true. And even when it is true, and even when everybody knows it's true, it's hidden. If you have seething anger over some of the things that I'm saying right now. Throw a yes in the in the comment stream just to see. You know? If there is a seething anger in you, if they if, if this if this resonates with you. If you feel this way, not that you're going to do anything, but if you feel this way. And then realize something. The people that listen to me, they're not batshit crazies. Batshit crazies show up and then they leave, even if they think they're on our side, right? Because they're like, he's not one of us. He's logical and reasonable and rational and he doesn't, you know, pander in bullshit so they haul ass and they run away. So I don't have irrational people here. I have calm, level-headed people who don't want this shit and yet you feel this way. So how do you think the batshit crazies on your side feel? Because they're actually freaking right, right? for a change. And then they add their level of like nonsense and innuendo and stupidity. I saw a thing yesterday. The UN is a Utah man, it's some chick getting in some UN security officer's face. And I'm like, maybe I should look this up before I start spreading bullshit. Turns out it's from 2019. And it was a UN conference that everybody knew about. But now the UN is in 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 Salt Lake City vaccinating Mormons or some shit is how they were making it out. You got this Desire, I think, on both sides for this thing to melt down by people that don't know, and that brings me to the song by Aaron Lewis. And there may be some people who um, who are my fellow anarchists and stuff that go, like, why would Jack like a song that much? Because it, it rings so much of patriotism. I like it because it rings of outrage, and this is—it's triggering liberals. They're offended. They're upset. I, I know that's easy to do, but they're upset in a different way, and I want you to explain, understand why. Because in this case, music shows us the truth of the pile of dry tinder. Aaron Luce is a different kind of musician. One of his first big country hits was a song called Granddaddy's Gun. That song had been recorded previously by a guy named Rhett Atkins and a much more famous country music artist, Blake Shelton. Both of them are good artists. The song is meh when they sing it. You don't believe it. You don't believe it. If you listen to Aaron Lewis's version of that song, and you've never heard it before, you think that's Aaron Lewis's granddaddy's gun, and that gun is really hanging over his mantle. He sells it. He doesn't sell it because he's fake. He sells it because he's passionate. He sells it because, and I mean this in the best way, he is a singer and an actor at the same time. He can actually convey the emotion. Am I the Only One, is the song he wrote. He really does feel that way, but guess what? So do tens of millions of others. They don't hate the song for its words. They hate the song for its truth, its passion, and its meaning, and the very fact that it scares the absolute living fuck out of them. That's why they hate it, because it reaches right into their fucking little... Pussy ass hearts and says, there are people that will say no to you and they have the means by which to make you know they fucking mean it. And by the way, the version of that song that's been sanitized for the radio fucking sucks because there's a place for the F word. And if there's ever been a place for it, it's in that type of song right now and it conveys the heat It conveys the anger. It confers the rage of people who are not separated by the color of their skin, who are not separated by their gender, who are not separated by any of this bullshit. They do not care if Barney and Frank get married or Sue and Betty get married. They don't give a shit about any of that. They just want the most fundamental right of humanity. The right to be left the fuck alone. And they're being told no. You cannot be left alone. And on the other side, you have these people that actually think they're right, and they actually think they're defending the rights of minorities while they burn down minority-owned businesses, while they destroy the livelihood of the people they claim to want to defend and protect, so it is very clear that they do not mean the shit that they say. And if this ever lights up, It will be one of the most bloody things that you can ever, ever imagine. That you could ever get your head around. It really is. I don't say that because I want it to be true. I say that because I don't want it to happen. But like I said in an earlier episode of Miyagi, if this happens, the people listening to this, the people that really are listening to this, the people that are actually getting the point, the people that actually listen to what I say that don't cherry pick a piece of it so they can be outraged, either leftist or rightist outrage or anarchist or statist outrage, that listen to the totality of it, we will not be the ones that decide that it starts. We will be caught in the middle. And we need to be prepared for that the way you prepare for a storm. But a storm that can think and move and act to a degree. Because mobs don't actually think. They move like a storm. They trend in a direction. And you need to be looking around you right now. You need to be thinking about where things will be the worst. And flat out, you do not want to be there. You do not want to be there. You need to be thinking about where the most people are that are prone to this violence on both sides. And get the fuck away from them. Now. You need to partner up with people who are ready to defend but do not wish to instigate. If you start putting a group together, and I've said this before, if you get somebody that's an instigator, they're either a moron or a fed, and you don't want either one near you. They need to be excommunicated rapid, out the door, goodbye. We don't want you here. When you see somebody, when you start putting together groups and coalitions, somebody starts getting excited about this. They're nuts, stupid, or an agent. They must be put aside. They must not be let in. They are cancer to what you are trying to do, and they are out there. And they're the ones that instigated the January 6th event. Don't think for one minute that didn't happen. This is not a pro- or anti-Trump argument. This is the truth about what your government did. Your government instigated a half-assed riot and then made it out to be worse than 9-11 and World War II put together. That's what just happened in front of your eyes. You can no longer question that they won't do anything and everything to get what they want, which is what? Total control. What government, all government wants is to get to the point where you need a permit to plant a tree, to dig a hole in your own yard. And there's places where they already have that. They literally feel that the only way that they can make society into the vision that they have is to control every single aspect of your life. And as much as I am out the door with any government, the one thing this country has, and it's, 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 a, it's a two-edged sword, it's a blessing and a curse, is we have the ability to have peaceful revolutions through the electoral process. And I'm going to tell you, if this march goes any further on the left foot, it's almost inevitable that the shit I'm talking about is going to happen. That's not a defense of the right. It's an analysis of the danger. And I say this to any of you that maybe have had the ability to have an open enough mind to listen this long that are on the left side of this dichotomy, that think it's okay to have you know transgendered men wrestling females. Etc. And all that stupidity, and all the dumbness that goes with it, they'll take you out first. They are not on your side. And the reason you're triggered by shit like Aaron Lewis's song is it touches you, and that place it touches you is in the last little bit inside of you that's willing to accept reality. Listen to it. Stop this nonsense. No one, no one in general, the vast majority of people, does not give a flying shit what other people do. As long as they can be left alone by those people. We have been turned on each other. And it is not for the benefit of any of us. And the greatest illusion is to believe that in any way, when either side does it, it's for your benefit. When that happens, it means two things. You were well programmed in the so called education system, and the fluoride in your tap water is working. We'll end there, and uh, I'll be back to get tomorrow with something a little bit more positive. Well, hi, folks. Jack Spearco here with another edition of Miyagi Mornings. This is episode 140, and it was inspired by my good friend and fellow Goose, who we had a, an interesting debate last night that has nothing to do with this uh, on Unloose the Goose, but he asked me after the fact do you think it's worth it to put together a bug-out bag? And I was like, absolutely, if you understand why you're doing it and what purpose putting together a bug-out bag has. So kind of coming at this from a macro standpoint, and I don't mean to insult anybody out there that I self-identifies the way I'm about to describe, but I kind of break preppers into two main groups. This grouping is not something you'll find in an encyclopedia or a book or people agree on. It's not official. It's just the way I describe it to kind of make it make sense to the most people. And within each group, there's tons of subgroups. There's extremists and and moderates in any, you know, dichotomy. Uh, But I think there is an actual dichotomy here, and I refer to them as Red Dawn preppers and practical preppers. And the Red Dawn prepper is the person that's probably read one too many Brad Thor books or something like that. And the bug-out bag is like the movie Red Dawn. When the Cubans parachute in, or whoever the hell it is, the Chinese or the North Koreans, they are going to grab our bug-out bag, we're going to go into the wilderness, and we're going to fight the Second American Revolution, or, or whatever it is in their minds. But... It's not necessarily that that puts one into the red non-prepper category. To me, when it comes to bug-out bags, right? It's the person that thinks the purpose of the bug-out bag is to live out of long-term for any reason. Because this is not practical. Since it's not practical, you don't go in the practical preppers. This is fantasy land. And um, I just want you to think for yourself, and those of you who are in the live stream... um, How much weight do you think the average person can carry for any length of time and distance in something like a backpack? You know, is it, is it a, is it a hundred pounds? You know, I have to say, I've rucked a hundred pounds before. It's not fun and it's not something you can do sustainably. It really isn't. Um, is it 50 pounds? And that's tough. That's tough once you start getting for any duration and distance, but it can be done by a person who's trained and ready to do it. Now the average person out there, even a person who's in really good physical shape, that does train, that has conditioning, if there and uh, Jonathan says probably around 30 pounds. I think that's for a grown ass man, uh, it's a pretty good number that's in good shape and's not injured in some significant way, doesn't have a bad knee or something like that. 30 pounds. Is, is, is there, and uh, M- M- Michelle says 15, I think that's actually probably more in keeping with a lot of people. I think it's somewhere in that range, 15 to 40 pounds, depending on the person. And so, as soon as we acknowledge the weight, let alone the capacity, we realize right away that this is not a long-term proposition. And it, it, was, it was never meant to be. A long-term proposition, and we we can go away from the things that, that that are the sizzle that sells the steak in an episode of you know 24 or like Brad Thor's Scott Harvath series or whatever, uh, or something from Tom Clancy or some you know uh, espionage uh, series on on network TV. The term bug out bag, and we just put that on the shelf for a minute, and let's call it what it actually is. It's 72 hour kit. And as soon as we call it a 72-hour kit, the average person you know, probably has enough computational power in their little brain to figure out that's about three days, three 24-hour periods, 72-hour kit. And that's because people who have studied this have looked at it long enough to understand that when we take that space and weight limitation, it is reasonable that the average person can take on their person Enough stuff for basic comfort and basic needs for a three-day period without being, you know, super trooper or something like that. That that the average person can do this. That even young children can carry most, if not all, of what they need. Like, so a 12-year-old is way different than a 5-year-old. But even a 5-year-old can have some sort of small bag that they can carry themselves. That's less shit you have to carry. And so as soon as we look at it that way... And we understand the purpose of it. All we have to do is to start to think about our six primary survival needs. Because I'm not going to give you a list of stuff to put in here today. I don't have enough time to do that in a Miyagi Mornings episode. But we're going to think about food, water, shelter, energy, security, health and sanitation. And so what we need to do is we need to sit down and have an honest, come-to-Jesus meeting with ourselves about the limitations of size, space, and weight... And say, what are the things that I need to shore up these six needs? And if I do that, I've done kind of the best that I can under the circumstances. And a good way to think about this is imagine that you didn't have, we're gonna get having a plan of where to go in the next segment here, but for now, you're going to go to a high school gymnasium. And maybe it's a shelter, maybe it's just abandoned. But in this scenario, there's no one waiting for you when you get there. There's no cots, there's no blankets, there's no electricity, and there's no plumbing. And you're, in a, you're still in a pretty good position, right, because basic shelter's handled. And we'll, we'll, you'll have to come back and figure out, well, what if we didn't have the gymnasium to go to? But this is kind of a good way to get your mind around this. How are you going to feed yourself, provide enough water for yourself, see to your sanitation, your, your cleanliness, needs, Uh, Make sure that you have, now, somebody could come and hurt you or take your stuff because maybe somebody else wasn't prepared. And what do people do who aren't prepared when they're doing without? Now, some people are fairly moral and ethical, but I believe 10% of all people are scum. So if 10 people walk by that gymnasium, at least one person is willing to violate the security of your situation. So we we cover those six needs. How am I going to create heat? How am I going to keep myself cool? How am I going to use electronic devices so I can communicate? All of that falls under energy. In wilderness survival, that need is covered under the concept of fire. That's what we call it in wilderness survival. We call it fire. I don't know if anybody else has done this, but I personally, when I started teaching this 13 years ago, turned it into energy. Because that is the purpose of fire. Fire gives me warmth. That is a form of energy. Fire can make tools. That is a form of energy. Fire can cook food. That is a form of energy. So we have other uses for energy when we're in kind of the modern world. If the cell towers are still up, I want my little device, right? I want to be able to use this thing. So I need to think about how I provide energy so that I can keep this operational for myself, right? And I'm holding my cell phone up for those that are on the audio-only podcast, Once I have that down, now I need to start thinking about tailoring a little bit more to myself. And so what I have to ask, these are the key questions, and these are all in the video notes. So you don't have to write them down or anything like that. You can come look them up. Uh, But these are my five questions. What, when, when you're putting together a bug out bag, and this leads to a lot of other decision making with preparedness as well. What are the biggest threats that would cause you to bug out in the first place? So the first thing to do is have an honest discussion with all the uh, romanticism around prepping that bugging out means bad shit happened. I don't want to bug out. All my stuff's here. I have shelter here, right? I have shelter here. My animals are here. All my preps that I that are not highly mobile are here. You know, all my my security mechanisms are in place here. I have a fenced property with barbed wire and great big things that go woof that will eat you if you try to come in the fence and you're not supposed to. This is a pretty great place. It's why I live here. Even if your place isn't so great, it's probably better than having a pack on your back and walking down the side of the road like the guy uh, Bill Bixby at the beginning of every old you know episode of Incredible Hawk. That's probably not where you want to be. So what are the threats that would actually make you leave in the first place? If you're on the coastline, it could be, you know, an impending hurricane or something like that. It could be where I live, it's more likely to be tornadic activity that's already destroyed the home that I live in because I'm not going to run away every time there's a tornado on the radar or I'll never be here in the summertime, right? So we want to do a th- th- threat analysis of likely threats that would make us leave. Then, where would you go? So many people have bug-out bags. I said, great, when you, when you have to bug out, where are you going to go? Because the woods is not a good answer. The mountaintop is not a good answer. So if you're lucky and you're well-prepared, maybe you have a bug-out location, right? An actual bug-out location where you have a second bit of housing and that you have the ability to basically live life mostly normal when you get there. Well, that bug-out bag needs to be designed to get you there over a three-day period-ish based on how you would probably get there and the route that you would take to get there. But then we start to go into my rules of three that are not, you know, how long you can live without, but my rules of three is for redundancy. Two is one, one is none, and three is for me. I believe you should have three of every plan or you don't have enough plan. So if I can't go to my bug out location, then where would I go? And if I can't go to that place, maybe my secondary plan is my brother Bob has a place about two hours away and we have an agreement with each other that if something goes wrong for him, he can come to me and I can go to him and we've even staged some gear. Great. Okay, that's my second plan. What if I can't go to Bob's? What if this is big enough that Bob's in deep shit too? What's my third plan? Maybe my third plan is I have a whole list of hotels, and whichever is outside of the affected area, I'm actually going to whip out the Visa card. There's nothing wrong with that, but you better be prepared to do that in advance. So now where am I going to go? And what are the three places I would go? And what will get me comfortably to those three locations in the best you know the best that I can do for that? Then how am I going to get there? If I'm going to get there in a car, then I can carry a lot more shit in my car. My bag is the truly mobile stuff, right? The stuff that if I end up stuck somewhere, I can pull out of the car and I can kind of make do until I go to my next place, right? Whether that's a FEMA shelter, which means you really didn't plan because that's not someplace you really want to be. Um, Or, I mean, I'm going to tell you the number one way, the number one way that people have written into me in 13 years of teaching this, I used my bug-out bag, is somebody in the family was critically injured or became critically ill, and that person had to go straight to a hospital and stay a multi-day stay. That sounds mundane, but when it's your loved one who was just in a car accident, and you don't want to leave that room because they may draw their last breath, it's not mundane. And it's been things like I was out at an event, You know, something like somebody's doing a backyard barbecue, everybody was getting tore up by mosquitoes, it was making everybody miserable, I went out to the car, pulled the off out of my bug out bag and passed it out. And then I replaced it. Like those are the types of everyday uses that I've heard over and over. So if times get tough or if they even if they don't is what I teach and there's how that gets used. What resources would be easy to acquire once you got to where you were going and which would be hard to acquire? Because even though we're not going to live perpetually out of a backpack, if we have some, like if energy's not going to be reliable there, there are small portable means of generating energy. I'm not a big fan of like, you know, solar powered battery packs or something until you don't have another option. You know, an unfolding, you know, one that folds out like a 15, 20 watt solar panel and a battery, you know, a battery backup system that can charge cell phones. That can keep you going a long damn time. So that would just be one example. Again, I'm not trying to give you a list here. I'm trying to say like when you get where you're going, what will you not be able to have? And is there something that if you take it with you, it will sustain you long term for that individual need? And then your last question is, what do you need to be fully mobile? And what can you rely on other methods? So if you need something... To be able to be thrown on your back and go somewhere, that goes priority one to try to make it work in your 72-hour kit. A lot of other things, either by either because you can't physically make the mobile, is on your back mobile level, or because you only have so much finite space, then you're going to default, what's my next level of mobility? So my primary level of mobility, like the, 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 the least likely to be completely impaired form of mobility is my two feet. We used to call it shoe leather express when I was a kid. Where are you going? I'm going here. How are you getting there? I don't have a ride. two leather express, right? So that's we know we can do that. Our next level up in mobility is a vehicle. So the things that don't go in the 72 hour kit, but we really wish we had, they go in the vehicle kit. And then maybe we move one off from there to like like trailers, RVs, camping gear, shit, like truck kits, etc. And we won't get into that today, but that's kind of how you categorize this stuff. And as you do that, you start it becomes really quick, the hierarchy that goes in a very limited space in that backpack that, that goes on your back. The next phase for people is we have to also be honest about what it isn't. What isn't this thing? And we already talked about the Red Dawn versus the Practical Prepper, but there are some things that are legitimate things to build bags for, to build mobile kits for, the, the average person's 72 hour kit is not. It is not an active shooter bag. An active shooter bag is something I grab because some guy's gone ape shit at a jack in the box and there ain't no cops and I'm willing to risk my ass to try to take them out. Everything in that bag is about keeping me alive if I'm injured, keeping somebody else alive if they're injured so there's a first aid to it, but primarily, how do I actively engage somebody with superior, superior firepower? That's an active, that is not a bug out bag. It is not an E&E kit. An E&E kit is going to have a lot of the same components as a 72-hour kit, but it's designed to help me get away, to hide. In a survival situation, unless you're caught behind enemy lines in North Korea, you want to be as loud, noisy, obnoxious, and visible as you can most of the time. Like, if you're in the wilderness, you want to be found. So, like, kill 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 a protected species out of season and build a fire where you're not supposed to, and somebody will come arrest you, and then you'll be saved. That's that's kind of the mentality that you're into. So you may want to not be really obvious where you are in a survival situation. You may be you may have found a place to hole up for a day or two, and you don't really want to attract attention to yourself. But in general, you're not trying to escape. So an E and E kit maybe there's a per, 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 place for that, but don't get that mixed in with your with your 72 hour kit in your mind. And then it's also I mentioned wilderness. It's not a wilderness survival kit. You know, in a wilderness survival situation, you're in a totally different situation than trying to get from here to your brother Bob's. You know, you're purposely putting yourself in a wilderness situation into a position where you're going to, you know, have a high probability. If the least thing goes wrong, you're going to survive in the wilderness. If you are in an evacuation situation, I have to leave my home and go somewhere safer unless every other option has been eradicated the last place i want to go is into the wilderness i want to go from an area of little support to an area of greater support and that's the purpose of that that kit for me and i think if you if you take this approach you start to realize something that that a lot of us who just i mean just type me in the comments if you're on the live stream. If you really like guns and ammo and tactical shit and knives, like, you know, you like that, you like putting together kits like that, or you just like having the stuff. Like, if a gun show comes, you're probably going to go to it, and I'll, 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 I'll get it even all started. I'll type in the uh, subject line me. I, that's me. I, I, I get it. But I shouldn't use building a bug-out bag as justification to buy the next shiny, you know, titanium spork or whatever it is. And what I'll realize if I have this honest come-to-Jesus meeting with myself about my needs, where I would go, how I would get there, and space and weight limitations, the vast majority of what anybody needs to put a 72-hour kit together is in your home. How do we know this? Can you live in your home for 72 hours in relative comfort without leaving? If you couldn't before the pandemic, you certainly can by now. You've figured out how to do that, how not to go out for dinner every day or whatever. So the fact that you can live for three days in your home means the things you need to live for three days are mostly in your home because you can't take the structure, the shelter with you, and your security goes down when you're so-and-so out in the wild. So... Should every single person in the United and every every single person in the developed world put together a seventy-two hour evacuation support kit? Absolutely. Should you have one for your wife, even if she's not on board? Should you do it for her or your husband if he's not on board? Should do it for him? Absolutely. Should you have something for your kids that maybe is not a complete system, but if your kid can pick some shit up and carry it? then there should be a bag and you should leave some room in it so the the things that give them comfort or whatever that make them happy the special little toy the security blanket the, whatever it is can go in there too but that gives them something they can do to help and it keeps them involved in the process and the best way to keep people from being afraid is give them some shit to do and again I'm not going to get into things about what goes in there but you know do have some things that are recreational do have some things that are you know Re, re, uh, relaxing things that can give you some sense of normalcy and then again we look at this as a hierarchy the most mobile and then we need the stuff that can go in a vehicle and the stuff that can go beyond your typical trunk or the back of an suv do we have a trailer do we have an rv do we have the ability in some way to carry more overhead storage taking both vehicles etc know where you're going though how you're going to get there and my rules of three not only do you have three places that you can go, primary, secondary, tertiary, three routes to each location, three ways by which you could get there. That's nine total routes to somewhere safer. You're probably going to be able to use one of them. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that one. I will be back next week, and we'll start up a whole new week of Miyagi Morning. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.